Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. In case you've forgotten, I will briefly summarize disturbing behavior. A high schooler named Steve moves with his family to a small town named Cradle Bay residing just off the coast. Steve, in his integration into a new school system with new friends and new love interests, notices something off about one of the more popular cliques, the Blue Ribbons. These preppy, overachieving teenagers all seem too in sync, and Steve and his new friends Gavin and Rachel all have their ideas for what might be going on. Gavin, plagued with witnessing one Blue Ribbon murdering someone, tries his hardest to convince others how dangerous they are. Before long, Gavin's parents volunteer him to be a part of the Blue Ribbons, and Gavin is taken in. Steve, still trying to adjust to his brother's suicide and fitting in, comes to understand the dark intentions behind the renowned teacher and doctor, as well as the local police department, who are also in on and operating on campus, taking in these students. Before long, he has dug too deep and is kidnapped and brought into the lab where they implant the kids with a chip surgically implanted into their eyeball. Steve manages to escape and save his friend Rachel from the same experimentation. Steve and Rachel, who have been through thick and thin during this adventure, realize their feelings for each other while also realizing something has to be done about these implanted kids as the implant is working incorrectly and causing them to murder others. Steve confronts the Blue Ribbons for one last time, but the befriended and misunderstood janitor comes to the rescue after learning how signals interfere with the implant. The Blue Ribbons, in an attempt to destroy the signal, jump onto the janitor's car, only for the janitor to drive off a cliff, killing all of them. Steve then pushes the doctor off the cliff too, and runs away from the town and his parents with Rachel and his sister by his side. Gavin, the last one with the implant, later goes his life to be a school teacher. The filmmakers of Disturbing Behavior warn of the dangers of neuroscience as it both sculpts the youth and fails to promote individuality. In the first scene, we will analyze this message being conveyed through use of color. We will begin with a scene where Blue Ribbon Chuck freaks out in the grocery store. What we are going to do is focus here on the different characteristics of Chuck's primal meltdown. The scene begins with a classic rejection. Rachel shooting down a nervous and frightened Chuck before he walks off with his tail between his legs. Later, Chuck in the grocery store, peering out the windows at Rachel as she hangs by the car. A lot of things go down in the scene to show us a representation of a pure loss of control, and we are going to break down these things in the scene to better understand the flaws within the neurotechnology shown in this movie. The filmmakers make a conscious effort to give their opinion on neurotechnology. As Chuck is lusting over Rachel, the director uses sound to clue us into what's going on inside Chuck's head. Considering the setting, we expect the sounds of a regular bustle of a grocery store, but that changes as Chuck sinks deeper and deeper into his obsession. The shot of Rachel is layered with whispering and slight chanting, as well as noises that resemble a computer glitching out. The zaps and chanting all within an echoed chamber let us know that there is something amiss in Chuck's head. The electric noises are also reminiscent of a lightning rod having a fit and further emphasizes that there is a loss of control within Chuck. As Chuck's staring is interrupted and he bursts into a rage, the music crescendos before it goes back to the dainty grocery store music 
all the while Chuck is bloodying a fellow shopper. This crescendo and then full stop creates an uncomfortable silence. Something is wrong, but the grocery store music keeps playing. This contrast between the store music and Chuck's actions emphasizes the brutality of this scene. If the music continued, it would be fitting, but the filmmaker's decision here gives the scene a new light. Seeing the contrast allows us to break up the hyper-normalism of a grocery store and illustrate how out of place these actions are. Chuck doesn't just punch this person who bumped into him, he beats him for a minute straight while pretty grocery store music plays in the background. In a way, it reflects the state of the town, dainty and perfect from the outside, but something dangerously wrong within. When Chuck is in the middle of his staring, we see some pretty abstract imagery. Hexagonal shapes, digits, and what looks like unstirred paint, all flashing one after another and doused in red. We see an artistic representation of coating, as well as fractals, all the while it is cutting back to shots of Rachel's body as she leads against the car. What does all of this even mean? His implant is failing, and we are getting a chance to see things from his perspective. The filmmakers use framing here to establish what Chuck wants, as well as what he is troubled with. The almost tormented nature of Chuck as he stares shows us that there is a difference between the feelings he has and what a normal person would be feeling in the same situation. Chuck's brain is confused at a deep level, and the abstract nature of the edits allows us to conceptualize, to an extent, how the implant works and what its flaws are. This scene shows overcorrection of Chuck and his feelings and the potential consequences of subduing natural human responses. From getting angry to rebelling, there are all sorts of unwanted behaviors in people, and this film warns us about how we avoid such conflicts. The issue is the nature of our fix, and that there is no permanence to it. The scene is like a pendulum swinging back, and for all the success has had through the blue ribbons, there are still lingering parts of humanity that have now been wildly affected by the implant. Chuck, and every other person, always has the ability to lose their cool and go ballistic on everyone around them. But is that the appropriate or even normal response to a boy checking out a girl? In an attempt to quell these teenagers into hollow conforming shells, we see the danger of going too far in a correction. What we have now is a kid who has no bounds to his violence, yet will always feel sexual attraction, which short circuits the implant. As he stares, there are flashes of red in his vision, giving us a somewhat abstract understanding of what he might be feeling. When he throws the person who bumped into him, it is into red cereal boxes. Red is representative of rage and intensity, but at the same time, this red is what makes Chuck more normal than anything else. What's also worth noting is how much red we are seeing, and how it visualizes an enveloping mix of the said rage and intensity, cutting from edit to edit. Although possibly unintentional, the red and its primal connotations, overlapping a man checking out a woman, is what highlights the wrongness of this implant. Sexuality is a human right, and although it was somewhat creepy to be checking out Rachel as hard as he was, those feelings and attractions are all too powerful for us to understand and even control at times. And of course, when we try to, we are met with chaos. He conformed until the chip malfunctioned. In his rage, he went as far away as possible from the implant's goals. In an effort to bring conformity, we see non-conformity and the movie shows us that there is fear to be had for neurotechnology. To wrap up this section, let us recap how we can see this unfold. We have parents hoping to control the youth and push them towards academic and acceptable extracurriculars, volunteering them for a program intended to do so. 
They do this because the controllable kids are the blue ribbons. They're the role models who are currently the most successful kids at the school. The thing is, the parents are unaware of the cost of this decision. And one way of emphasizing the risk of neurotechnology is having a malfunction of this magnitude. Forced conformity leads to a greater rebellion in some ways. And by the design of this scene, this meltdown was caused by a very normal thing that kids do, which is get sexually aroused. The filmmakers use this device to show a fatal flaw of neurotechnology. Now we are going to jump ahead a little and take a closer look at the long-awaited scene where Steve gets his implant. It is important to see the effects of the implant, but what is also important is seeing what goes into the implant. What happened to Chuck at the experiment room, and what was the original goal of the implant? This scene is essential, and unravels themes and messages this film tries to get across, and does so by showing the brutality of the experiment, as well as showing the inhumane nature of the implant. Through the reveal of the implant's goals, we see the loss of individuality, and through the experiment, we see the anti-neurotechnology attitude this movie has. We will first look at the Misen scene and focus on the environment. Immediately we see that wherever this place is, it is a dark place, grimy sewers and such leading to a pristine experiment room, and we are in the audience knowing that Steve is in the thick of it. Why? Because the underground nature takes away the integrity from the experiment. There is no one to know if it goes wrong and no rules to follow. The interesting part of this decision by the filmmakers is to point out the flaws in this entire process of converting a teenager. You have the parent offering up their kid for the experiment, but at the same time you have this experiment taking place far out of sight of any parents. The parents are okay getting their child where they need to go, but only because they are not seeing the true process behind it. If this is where the experiments take place, then we can say that the environment speaks for itself. Furthermore, the location of the experiment is loaded with scientific equipment, not to mention the myriad control panels and buttons all pointing to a general feeling of excessiveness. Interestingly, the first time we see the doctors performing this procedure, they are framed in the shot standing behind a large amount of technology. This framing lets us know that these men have been consumed by this procedure and genuinely feel that they are bringing success to these kids. Steve is strapped down into a chair, and we see that no one would voluntarily go through with this. Even the chair itself is akin to an electric chair. The experiment itself involves a long metal contraption that carries the implant and puts it into the eye of the patient. Why the eye? It is always unsettling to see procedures regarding the eyes in film. Furthermore, it might emphasize how the implant changes the worldview of those who wear it. As the implant heads directly towards his eye, we can almost cringe at the imagined and involuntary pain. This entire experimentation scene is used as a device by filmmakers to really show how messed up this process is. Specifically, the inhumanity of stripping away one's view on the world, and in some way their humanity too. Brutal, because the patient is involuntarily in that chair, and is going to be essentially branded by this implant. Later on in the film, we hear the janitor describing the kids as unsavable before killing them all. And it draws more attention to the phrase branding. In addition to all the effects of the implant, we can assume it can never be removed either. The patients are scarred for life like a cow in a field with a similarly narrow scope of what their superiors want them to do. Let's talk about Steve and how he is literally being dragged to the chair. This kid is doing what he can to preserve his own mind. He has seen how the implant drives kids to success, but also entirely brainwashes them. 
He does not believe in any of this in the slightest, yet it is his faith. It is quite powerful. When Steve is strapped down and we see the scientists getting the implant ready, we can see a flurry of media emitting from the control panel where one of the henchmen scientists is directing the implant, headed directly for his eye. It is assumed that Steve is not seeing any of this, as this might mean that he has already been compromised. Instead, the screen on the control panel seems to be showing what is going to be implanted. Draped in golden lighting and hypnotic repetition of positive mantras, we see shots of children smiling, laughing, and engaging in the classroom. We see shots of the Statue of Liberty and the American flag. And we see words, achieve, forward, be blue, excellence. We see what the scientists define as successful, and through this definition we see the death of individuality, of becoming your own person, of failing, of going down a different path. This implant, funny enough, says be blue, and that shows the contrast between what the implant is supposed to do and what it actually does. Join the blue ribbons, but be plagued with murdering people in a red haze of anger. The signature mark of the implant is how their eyes flash red from afar, too. The implant seems to give its own level of operating on the people that it is put into. The film seems to give its own take on whether or not neurotechnology at this level is worth it, and does so by presenting the stark contrasts and failures of it. Neurotechnology symbolizes the ability to control in this film. Instead of giving the youth the power to improve themselves the way they would like to, we see adults forcing it onto them instead, showing how this technology can be taken advantage of. There are no blanket solutions, and as the research shows, youth does not always respond the way we want them to. It depends on the condition of society at some points and how much stock we put into individualism. In countries where we put stock into it, we see lower statistics regarding smoking as society collectively puts down the cigarette. But in a society like America, we are sometimes hasty in finding a one-and-done product that provides enough benefit that considering other products just isn't worth the time. For example, the over-prescribing and medications to patients, leading to all sorts of societal issues, for example, the opioid crisis, and more relevant to our discussion, the rampant prescribing of ADHD medication. This is very similar to the implant being given to students who are stepping out of line at high school. These comparisons seem to revolve around the idea of a blanket solution and people that have the power to shape the youth not recognizing how individuality impedes these blanket solutions which impede our youth. Nonetheless, these issues exist, and in this film we see Steve is dealing with depression, both about his brother's suicide and the utter change in life it brought. Like any other teenager, he has problems, and for these problems to push him towards covering them up or retreating, we see this decision in the following scene. After all of this discussion on the implant, we are now going to move on to the scene involving the janitor and Steve, where they open up to one another. This scene deserves mention because it provides the pro-individualism rhetoric that really solidifies a point the movie is trying to make, and does so through pathos and shots that show loneliness. It starts with Steve in the one section of the school where he can be alone. His newness to the school is emphasized, and it is reminiscent of a familiar memory that people might have where they duck out where no one is in the middle of a school day. As the research shows, depression, suicidal tendencies, and loneliness are widely unspoken about risks that our youth face on the day-to-day. -day. Steve has been having trouble making friends, and he is dealing with grief, and feels entirely on his own facing these problems. The significance of Steve's brother's story 
is that besides the main plot, there are other things plaguing the mind of Steve. The movie makes an effort to speak about people who are represented in Steve's position in some way. The entire shot of Steve in the basement speaks defeat, loneliness, and retreat. We are able to see him at his weakest. The janitor speaks candidly to Steve, telling him that it is very easy to be misunderstood as the janitor has been facing that demon his entire life. There is a clever way he goes about dealing with it, by acting moronic but secretly being quite intelligent, all because he refuses to put up with a judgment. Something about this speaks to Steve, as the camera cuts back to his surprised face. The janitor, who later goes on to sacrifice himself in the movie, seems to serve as a guide to Steve about going your own way in things. Steve doesn't subscribe to school at the end anyways, as he entirely runs away. Together they bond over the idea of understanding where one stands in the world, and this relationship is created in a draped golden light, emphasizing that the janitor is an ally. Hopefully, this made detention a little more fruitful. This was designed to equip someone with different views towards this film, and also to clash against any views they had in the first place. There are practical applications to the thoughts presented here, as well as ones that only make sense in the context of the film. Overall, it is important to recognize the blessing of individuality and analyze what forces come down on it in our society. It is also important to recognize how fast we are advancing with technology and how we are getting better at manipulating our own humanity every single day. Pushing our children towards education is hard to argue against, but the issue lies in how we do it. Should it be orthodox, or should they be free to flow through it like water? letting the time of adolescence have sway and influence on how kids go about these formative years in their life. And where do we stand on our current practices? How will you raise your kid? Will you listen to what others tell you, or invoke your own path upon them? The parents in this film only wanted what was best for the children, and the school system only really wants what's best for them as well. And to an extent, too, as you sit here in detention. You are being molded every time you enter the grounds of school, and we must be able to draw the line between an environment that forcefully molds versus one that provides an open field to build yourself up according to your own code. Yeah, Gavin smokes too much pot, but he was the most supportive character in the entire film, building up his friends according to what he believed in. And yeah, he goes on to be a successful teacher years later, but the redness in his eyes as the movie reveals that he is the last one with the implant, well, it begs the question, at what cost? Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time!